Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 144, 12 squared. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on February 27th, 2024, in Princeton, New Jersey. I suspect the sound will be a little different since I don't have a walk-in closet here. Anywho, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. We are still bouncing around the mid-1600s on the timeline. Our high watermark remains the end of New Sweden in 1655. I flew right over Tinicum Island yesterday and got a picture of it and put it on Twitter. I've got a sense of the topics to cover in the next couple of months, unless my muse leads me astray, as often happens, before we reach the big wars in the last three decades of the century, including King Philip's War in Massachusetts, which finally ended the long peace between Plymouth and the Wampanoags, Berkeley's Rebellion in Virginia, and the Pueblo Revolt in New Mexico in 1680. Before then, my obsessiveness requires me to cover the New Haven colony at least a little bit, for which I still need to finish a huge book. The last years of New Netherland as a Dutch colony, Roger Williams saving Rhode Island yet again, the further impact of the English Civil War on the colonies, the wars of Iroquois expansion known variously as the Beaver Wars or the Morning Wars, the origins of plantation slavery, and probably the founding of South Carolina. If there are any other subjects in the years from 1650 to 1670 that you think I should hit, please send me a note. Along the way, there will be some smaller stories to tell that fit into the timeline. One of those will be the witchcraft prosecution in Springfield, to which I alluded in the episode on William Pynchon. That's a good one. In this episode, which tells the story of three remarkable people in early Maryland. There will also be at least one more interview, which I hope will go as well as the talk with Joseph Kelly. How quickly I will get through all of that remains to be seen, insofar as I am entering a busy stretch in the struggle for the legal tender, and, well, my muse might send me in heretofore unanticipated directions. This episode will be much more enjoyable, or at least understandable, if you've made your way through our previous episodes on early Maryland, particularly the two on the plundering time from December 2023. Last April, I made it to St. Mary's City, which most of you know is the original seat of the proprietary colony of Maryland. There I saw a historical marker and some other work of the curators recounting the story of Matthias de Sousa, Black reads, quote, Matthias de Souza was the first black Marylander of African and Portuguese descent. He was one of nine indentured servants brought to Maryland by Jesuit missionaries and was on the ark when Lord Baltimore's expedition arrived in the St. Mary's River in 1634. His indenture was finished by 1638 and he became a mariner and fur trader. In 1641, he commanded a trading voyage north to the Susquehannock Indians, and in 1642, sailed as master of a catch belonging to the provincial secretary John Luger. The Sousa departed and returned to this river many times. He anchored near here and walked to Luger's manor house at St. John's. While living there, he served in the 1642 Legislative Assembly of Freeman, 
No record remains of D'Souza's activities after 1642, but his legacy of courage and success is registered with great pride by all the citizens of St. Mary's County and Maryland. Back to me. I both love historical plaques and can recognize that they leave out a fair amount. In describing D'Souza as the first black Marylander, the word Marylander does a fair amount of work. Disappointing as it may be for the good citizens of St. Mary's to learn, D'Souza, as scholars refer to him, was not actually the first person of African descent to work in Maryland. The infamous William Claiborne had several Africans, or at least blacks of African descent, working at his trading post on Kent Island as servants of some sort at least four months before D'Souza arrived in the Ark. Of course, Claiborne was proudly and loudly Virginian, so maybe his African servants don't count as Marylanders for plaque purposes. Regardless, D'Souza is the first black Marylander whose name comes down to us. D'Souza was what today we would call an Atlantic Creole, a person of African descent with, in the words of David Bogan, professor of law at the University of Maryland School of Law, connections to the wider Atlantic world. As the plaque gets right, he came to Maryland on the Ark in that first voyage of the Calvert settlers in 1634, which long-standing and attentive listeners will remember from our series on the founding of Maryland. The Calverts had established a headright system for allocating land, meaning that settlers who paid for others to come to Maryland would receive an allocation of land based on the number of people they sponsored. The Sousa was described in one of the early documents making a claim for land based on that system as Matthias Sousa, a mulatto, the only reference to suggest his racial origins between 1634 and 1650. He came over to work for the Jesuits who came over on the Ark and who would figure prominently in the colony until they were displaced by Richard Engel during the plundering time. As the term mulatto suggests, D'Souza was also descended from Europeans. He must have been born within a few years of the turn of the 17th century, a period when Spain and Portugal were united under the Spanish crown. Professor Bogan suggests that D'Souza might have been descended from either a Spanish or Portuguese man. Intriguingly, the name is particularly common among people descended from Spanish or Portuguese Jews of the period, most of whom would have converted to Christianity in the 1500s to avoid expulsion. If so, Matthias de Sousa might also have been the first person of Jewish descent in Maryland. The case for de Sousa's Jewish ancestry is scant and speculative, but it's not nothing either. Jesuit historians, without offering documentary evidence, apparently thought so. They refer to de Sousa as the Jew in discussions of him. The evidence for this is at best circumstantial, because we do not know where de Sousa boarded the Ark, or where he was before he boarded the Ark. Some have speculated that he may have boarded at Barbados, where there were people named D'Souza of Jewish descent much later in the 17th century, but no evidence of such people in the 1630s. Regardless, D'Souza is a great example of the complexity of the Atlantic world and the people living in it, even in the early 1600s. 
Matthias de Sousa was therefore a servant in the employ of the Jesuit fathers during his first years in Maryland. However, by 1638, he was transacting business for his own account, something he would not be allowed to do if he were still indentured. The estate of the awesomely named Justinian Snow sort of conjures up an MI5 agent in a good spy novel. Submitted to the court on May 24th, 1639, lists as an asset a debt of 12 in roll, 12 pounds of tobacco, from Matthias de Sousa. As long-standing listeners will instantly remember, this was not because de Sousa had borrowed tobacco per se from Snow, but because tobacco was the functional currency for settling debts in early Maryland. All the assessed values in Snow's estate records were expressed in pounds of tobacco, and DeSouza's debt was the smallest. One historian has observed that DeSouza's name appears in Snow's estate listing along with other debtors who we know were engaged in the Indian trade. On this frail read, we might hang another speculation that DeSouza, known to be quick to pick up new languages, was himself making a living that way and his debt to snow had arisen from the purchase of trade goods to barter for fur or hides. There's no evidence that D'Souza was literate. No correspondence or documents known to be authored by him survive. That would have made him very much like the mostly illiterate men and women who came to the Chesapeake as servants in the 1630s. Most such people died without leaving even a few words to remember them by. We have the echo of a few words from D'Souza, who was clearly a hustler in the best sense because he was deposed as a witness in a lawsuit against Thomas Copley, brought by John Prettyman for wages, and that record does survive. On November 3rd, 1642, John Luger took a sworn statement from D'Souza and recorded the essence of it. Quote, Matthias D'Souza made oath that about March 1641, he was appointed by Mr. Poulton to go in his pinnace as skipper and traitor to the Susquehannocks, and by him appointed to hire men at Kent for the voyage, and that he would write to Mr. Brent to assist him in it, and that at his coming to Kent with the knowledge and consent of Mr. Brent, he hired John Prettyman to go upon the voyage, and that he hired him for 200 pounds of tobacco per month, and that accordingly, John Prettyman was out upon the voyage two months within three days, and that by his means and presence, he verily believeth the pinnace and men were saved at that time from destruction by the Susquehannocks. Back to me. There's a lot in here, so let's break it down. Thomas Copley was a Jesuit missionary, so de Sousa was still working for the brothers, even if the term of his indenture had expired. Copley was the successor to Ferdinand Poulton, so Copley would be on the hook for John Prettyman's back wages from that expedition to the Susquehannocks. Mr. Brent was Giles Brent, whom you've heard many times before, and who ran the show on Kent Island after the Calverts had ejected Thomas Claiborne. D'Souza would have asked his permission to recruit men for the trip, and Poulton wrote a letter of introduction to Brent that D'Souza could use to secure that permission. The pinnace probably belonged to the Jesuits, and crops up from time to time in their narratives. Now let's go to David Bogan's essay, quote, 
D'Souza was appointed skipper and placed in charge of the vessel for trading with the Indians. He had at least two crew members, including John Prettyman, and he probably had more than two because he reported that Prettyman saved the, quote, men. I'm going to interject. Also, because it would take more than three men, probably at least six to eight, to sail a pinnace of that era up the Chesapeake under ordinary conditions. So it was definitely more than two other men. Back to Bogan. D'Souza's appointment as the person in charge indicates a person with responsibility who is familiar with sailing vessels, but he could have acquired sufficient sailing experience to be skipper of a small pinnace in the bay after his arrival in Maryland. It's possible that D'Souza's work on ships and with the Indians kept him from becoming a planter and helped keep him largely out of the political process, but this is speculation. We do not know what work he did other than the single trading voyage. Back to me. Finally, D'Souza testified that his means and presence he verily believeth the pinnace and men were saved at that time from destruction by the Susquehannocks. The Susquehannocks were both critical to the fur trade, which now centered in Pennsylvania, and aggressive. Within a year of D'Souza's expedition, the Maryland Assembly would authorize an expedition against the Susquehannocks. It would go poorly, and John Prettyman would be one of the soldiers to go along. Not quite one of life's little ironies, but close. The Maryland General Assembly proceedings for March 23, 1642, showed that among the freemen in attendance, and thereby permitted to vote, was Matthias D'Souza. He's not recorded in attendance at any other session, so he was not a regular attendee, even if he were allowed to attend. Perhaps D'Souza had better things to do than exercise the great boon of the franchise. He was a trader and not a farmer, and traveled rather than plowed to make his daily bread. Odds are, D'Souza just wasn't usually around when the assembly met, and not being a big landowner, he would not have had very much at stake when they did. Unfortunately, our records of D'Souza end in 1642 when he was sued for various debts, perhaps incurred as a result of the fraught expedition to Susquehannock country. He paid off those debts by working consecutive six months indentures for John Luger and John Hollis. We do not know when he died or whether he was a servant or freeman when he did. What we do know is that Matthias de Sousa had made himself into a competent captain, trader, and merchant, and had been recognized as a freeman by admission to the Maryland General Assembly. The opportunities for black men in the Chesapeake would shut down within a couple of decades, but in the 1640s, it was still possible to move up in the world. About the time Matthias de Sousa had worked his way out of his indenture with the Jesuits, which was probably in the middle of 1638, the Brent family arrived in Maryland. The Brent siblings, Giles, Folk, he went back to England pretty quickly, Margaret and Mary, were Catholics and of noble descent. They were distant cousins of Lord Baltimore, like very distant. They came to Maryland so that they could practice their religion in the open and make some serious coin on the side. Baltimore probably regarded the Brents as potentially excellent additions to his colony. That would only turn out to be a little bit true. 
long-standing and attentive listeners may recall that it was Giles Brandt, serving as acting governor while Leonard Calvert was back in England, who provoked Richard Engel into attacking the colony much later in the 1640s. Further, Giles was annoying enough that the Calverts ended up putting him in charge of Kent Island, far up the bay, which both got him out of St. Mary's City and put him up front in dealing with Thomas Claiborne, who would periodically arrive unannounced and try to start a revolution. Margaret was the most interesting of the Brents by a long shot. She was the third or fourth most famous woman in the early English settlement of North America, certainly after Pocahontas and Anne Hutchinson, and perhaps the poet Anne Bradstreet, because at one point Margaret demanded the right to vote in the Maryland Assembly, which makes her a hero to people who love to record female firsts and that sort of thing. That was surely a flashy moment, and it's why some people want to describe Margaret Brent as a proto-feminist. I think that's nonsense on stilts for any number of reasons, the most important being that there's no evidence whatsoever that Margaret thought women in general should be enfranchised or that married women should be able to own property and sign contracts in their own name or that she thought at all about rights for women in any modern sense. If she were to have any such claim, it would be because she was such an effective capitalist. Margaret never married, and as a result, could own property and conduct business on her own account. In this, she proved so competent that when Leonard Calvert, who was the governor of Maryland on behalf of his brother Lord Baltimore, died in June 1647, Margaret was his deathbed confidant and became the executor of his estate. It was in that capacity, and therefore only because she was such a capable businesswoman, that she made her famous demand. Margaret Brent's voice comes down to us to a far greater degree than Matthias de Seuss's. She was literate, so she sent letters, and she was in business, so she wrote contracts and litigated over them. Litigation leaves written arguments and testimony. All of this, however, was highly unusual for an English woman in the 1630s and 1640s. For starters, only about 10% of English women of Margaret's vintage were literate. In her fairly elevated social circle, the percentage would have been much higher, but against the background population that made her unusual enough. That she remained single, which enabled her to be in business, was downright weird, especially so in a setting like St. Mary's City, where the male-to-female ratio was something like 6 to 1. Margaret Brent would have been under a great deal of pressure to marry if she'd not made it abundantly clear that she was unavailable, for some reason more acceptable than her own desire for self-actualization. Some historians speculate that she had taken an oath of celibacy, which single Catholic women sometimes did if they were part of a, quote, unenclosed religious order, one that did not live behind walls in a convent. Imagine a nun without the nunnery or the habit. That her sister Mary also remained single suggests that perhaps they joined such an order together, but we don't know. Regardless, we know from court records that Margaret Brent was active in trade, husbandry, no pun intended, and the buying and selling of land. As long-standing and attentive listeners will remember, the Marylanders sued each other at the dropping of a hat, and few people were involved in more litigation over business matters 
than Margaret Brent. The events that led to Margaret Brent's famous moment began with a conversion to Christianity of the paramount chief of the Piscataway tribes. Kitamakond, as his name was transliterated, converted around 1640 through the efforts of the Jesuits. He had a younger daughter who was baptized with a Christian name Mary. Mary Kitamakwand was turned over to the English and made a ward of Leonard Calvert and Margaret Brent about 1641, when she was seven. She had to learn English and Christianity and would become one of those interesting people in the middle ground between European and indigenous societies. Mary Kitamakwand is our third lost voice from early Maryland, and from now on I'll refer to her as Mary Kay so as to dodge botching Kitamakwand for the rest of the podcast. Mary Kay is known among early Maryland cognoscenti as the Pocahontas of Maryland, but under much uglier circumstances, for she was forced to marry a man who did not love her. In 1644, when Leonard Calvert was out of Maryland and Mary Kay was only 10 years old, Margaret Brandt agreed to allow her brother Giles, then 38, to marry her ward. We'll come back to this in a moment, but suffice it to say that marrying such a young girl was a bit yucky even then. Recall that when Pocahontas married John Rolfe in 1614, she was 16 or 17 years old and had demonstrated personal agency time and time again, even if you don't believe she rescued John Smith the first time. Recall also that John Rolfe was only 29 in 1614 and manifestly head over heels for Pocahontas. The Pocahontas of Maryland, as it were, was a victim to a degree that Pocahontas never was. Indeed, historians believe that Governor Calvert, Mary Kay's co-guardian along with the absolutely not a feminist Margaret Brent, never would have allowed the marriage which is why it was arranged when he was back in England. The question is, what was the point of the marriage? The English were at peace with the Piscataway people, who were under constant pressure from the Susquehannocks, so there was no war to settle as there had been in Virginia in 1614. Rather, the Brents wanted to position themselves as heirs to Paramount Chief Kitamakwan's lands, or at least such of his lands that were relevant to ambitious Maryland planters in 1644. Quite apart from the yuck factor, Lord Baltimore and his brother Leonard believed that the marriage was an underhanded move by the Brents to weaken their proprietary rights in the colony. Neither of them would trust Giles Brent again, although Leonard would turn to Margaret Brent in his final hours, suggesting that he may have eventually forgiven her for her role in the marriage. The wedding occurred at the beginning of the plundering time, when the Protestant trader Richard Ingle would take out his resentment over Giles Brent's ham-handed attempt to arrest him by stirring up a rebellion against the Catholic Calverts. If you listen to the plundering time episodes, and you should because they're awesome, you know that Maryland fell to Ingle's raiders and local Protestant insurgents and was only recovered in 1646 and 47 when Leonard returned, hired something like 28 soldiers from Virginia, and retook St. Mary's City in Kent Island. Unfortunately for Leonard, 
he did not have the money or the tobacco to pay his soldiers. Too much had been plundered from Maryland by Engel under the cover of a letter of mark, and those assets were now being adjudicated in the Admiralty Court in London. Not paying the soldiers is never a good move, and would become the chief problem of Maryland over the next few years. Also, unfortunately for Leonard, just two months after liberating Kent Island, Leonard Calvert would suddenly fall deathly ill, and he would die late on June 9th, early on June 10th, 1647. He spent his last waking hours in conversation alone with Margaret Brent. To her, he communicated his order that Thomas Green, who'd been his loyal friend since they left England on the Ark in 1633, be appointed governor, at least until his brother Lord Baltimore could weigh in on the matter from England. He further appointed Margaret his executor with the instruction, quote, to take all and pay all. For those of you who have never settled an estate, this meant what it sounds like, that Margaret was to collect all debts owed to the estate and pay all debts owed by the estate. This was crucially important because Leonard had pledged not only his own Maryland estate to pay the soldiers, but that of his brother, Lord Baltimore. Now let's go to Lois Green Carr's account in her essay, Margaret Brent, A Brief History. Quote, Leonard's movable assets were insufficient to pay the debt owed to the soldiers, and under English law, as executor, Margaret could not readily sell his land. She kept pacifying soldiers ready at times to mutiny. Finally, with no time to gain Lord Baltimore's consent, on January 3, 1648, the provincial court appointed her as attorney in fact. She was replacing Leonard Calvert, to whom the proprietor had given power, jointly with John Luger, the provincial secretary, to dispose of his property in an emergency without authorization. At this point, Margaret made the move for which she is most famous today. On January 21, 1648, she appeared before the assembly to demand two votes, one for herself as a landowner and one as Lord Baltimore's legal representative. The governor refused and she departed with a statement that she protested against all proceedings unless she may be present and have voted as aforesaid. It was unlikely that she expected success, but she knew well that the assembly was unwilling to vote taxes to pay soldiers whom Governor Calvert had promised to pay himself. She may have hoped by her protest to cover herself as she faced the immediate necessity of selling the proprietor's cattle without his knowledge. That day she began the sale, thereby averting a crisis that might have destroyed the colony and its policy of religious toleration. Back to me. Lord Baltimore was not, as it turned out, at all pleased. In fact, he was irate. He had not trusted the Brents since Giles had married the ten-year-old Indian princess, and by 1650 he would make life so difficult for the Brents that they would leave Maryland for Virginia. They would set up plantations on the south bank of the Potomac and draw dozens of Marylanders to work there. Margaret Brent would live on her plantation, which she named Peace, until her death in 1671. Notwithstanding Baltimore's wrath... The men of the Maryland Assembly, who had denied Margaret not just the two votes she demanded, but even one, 
stood up for her in a very blunt letter to the Lord Proprietor, quoting Carr, quoting that letter. We do verily believe that your estate was better for the colony's safety at that time in her hands than in any man's else, for the soldiers would never have treated with any other with civility and respect. She rather deserved favor and thanks from your honor for her so much concurring to the public safety than to be justly liable to bitter invectives. Back to me. In other words, Margaret Brent's courage and diplomacy, evidenced in her ability to persuade the enraged soldiers that they should be patient and would eventually be paid, saved Marilyn for the Calverts. Some of this, they said, was because she was a woman, for the soldiers would never have treated with any other with civility and respect. Chivalric values still had their uses. But what of Mary Kitamakund Brent, our third and most lost voice from early Maryland? We know very little about her. There was no John Smith to write her into history and legend. She never went to London to be paraded around before that city's flower and chivalry. There are no portraits of her. All we know for sure is that she married at roughly age 10 in 1644. She would learn English well enough to get along. She would have three surviving children with Giles, and that Giles Brent would remarry in Virginia in 1654, only 10 years later. They did not divorce, so Mary must have died around age 20. Giles was seized by Richard Ingle in 1645 and taken to England and would not return until 1647. Perhaps they did not consummate the marriage until then, at which point Mary K. Brent would have been roughly 13. Even if she had more pregnancies than children, at least one scholar wrote that she had six pregnancies, but I could not find the underlying source, she could have had her three children between 1647 and 1654. Perhaps she died in childbirth. We do not know precisely why Mary Kay's father turned her over to Leonard Calvert and Margaret Brent. It may have had to do with Piscataway tribal succession. The paramount chief who greeted the Ark and the Dove in 1634 was a man named Wanus. He maintained peaceful, if careful, relations with the English until he was murdered in 1636. The murderer was, allegedly, Kitamakwan, Mary's father and Wanus's younger brother. Historians have surmised, that is the best they can do, that Kitamakwan converted to Christianity. He took the name Charles, presumably after the King of England, and gave up his daughter for an English education to bolster his own tenuous claim to his office. There's a competing theory, equally unsupported by evidence, that the English persuaded Kitamakwan to kill his brother to put them in the driver's seat with the Piscataways. Well, this is something that the English were more than capable of doing. John Smith would have done something like that in a heartbeat. It does not strike me as the sort of move the cautious Calverts would have made. So I'd be surprised if the more cynical theory were true in this case. In any case, Mary Kay came to live with the Brents and then married Giles, had children by him, and died. We do not know whether she loved or loathed her husband, whether her children gave her joy or not. 
or whether she resented her father for sending her away. Giles would remarry after Mary's death, but have no more children. He would die in Virginia early in 1672, shortly after his sister Margaret. There is a coda. Giles and Mary Kay's eldest son, also named Giles, born on April 5th, 1652, would be an active player in the later history of the Americans. Here's a summary of his biography from the Encyclopedia of Virginia, quote, Giles Brent was a participant in Bacon's Rebellion, 1676-77, a Catholic of both Indian and English heritage. He learned the Indian language from his mother, inherited all of his father's land, and became a prosperous young planter and militia captain. In July 1675, Brent served in a party that killed several Indians in retaliation for the Indians having killed some white Virginians. He joined forces loyal to Nathaniel Bacon in order to battle the Pamunkey and collaborated with Bacon until the rebel leader turned his forces against the governor, Sir William Berkeley, in 1676 and laid siege to Jamestown. Brent then gathered approximately a thousand men to confront Bacon's forces. When the men learned that Bacon had burned Jamestown, they deserted Brent. He died in Middlesex County on September 2nd, 1679. Back to me. There's something wrong in the math here that I cannot account for. If Mary Kay died in 1654, there's no way that Giles Jr. would have, quote, learned the Indian language from his mother. He would have been two when she died. I would believe, however, that Mary Kittimaquan's family was in the area, or that Giles Sr. had employed Piscataway servants. I suspect that's very likely. In either case, young Giles may well have learned the language of his mother from other Indians in their household, or extended family with whom he spent time as a child, or from his servants. Again, more speculation. This is a great place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by Gmail at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.